Today from the Global Lane, Russia crosses a line with anti-Semitic rhetoric. Israel responds with military aid to Ukraine. To help Ukraine rebuff Russian invasion, and also at the same time showing Moscow that there's consequences for their rhetoric. Coming soon to the U.S. southern border, 18,000 migrants per day? And we're talking six, six or seven million encounters at the border. It'll just simply overwhelm the border guards. Biden creates a new government agency to protect Americans from disinformation. What they're trying to protect you from here is obviously just things that they disagree with. I think it's taking us down a very dark road. And leftists unhinged at the Supreme Court. What about their rights? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Jewish Nazis in Ukraine making a rocky relationship worse. Israel is outraged by offensive remarks from Russia's chief diplomat, calling Jews anti-Semitic and claiming Adolf Hitler had Jewish heritage. Just days after the world remembered six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust by Adolf Hitler, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said Nazi leader Adolf Hitler was part Jewish. If I remember correctly, I may be wrong, but Hitler also had Jewish origins. So it doesn't mean absolutely anything. For some time, we've heard from the wise Jewish people that the biggest anti-Semites were Jewish. Joining us with more is Middle East Forum Director Greg Roman. Greg, it seems Russian officials aren't too concerned about winning friends and influencing people at a time when they need all the support they can get. What do you make of this in Lavrov's remarks? I think that Lavrov's increasingly extremist rhetoric and his inability to defend the Russian position has now landed on the oldest, most despicable form of pernicious hatred, anti-Semitism. And the fact that he's using tropes and slurs, which belong more in the book of the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or in Hitler's Mein Kampf, is derivative of the fact he and his country have a losing position. Now that he's targeting Jews and Israelis, it really mean, must mean that he's on the downward slide to defeat. Well, it sure does. I mean, I can't understand why he would do that. Isn't it a time when he needs more worldwide support rather than less? Israel was walking a fine line between uh, acting as a neutral arbiter between Ukraine and Russia, on one hand, setting up a field hospital outside of Lviv in western Ukraine, but also, on the other hand, trying not to make any or what could be considered inflammatory or biased remarks against Russia. And yes, you mentioned Israel has done a lot to help Ukrainian refugees. Many have been resettled into the Jewish state. And so with Russian or post-Soviet era Jews now making up about 15 percent of the Israeli population, it seems that Israel has been cautious, as you mentioned, about its approach in the war in Ukraine. Now, after this statement from Lavrov, do you think Israel... Uh, maybe more supportive of Ukraine now, maybe militarily? Your thoughts on that? Israel's Ministry of Defense, about two hours after Lavrov made his statements, indicated that they would increase the amount of defensive weaponry that they would be supplying to the Ukrainian government. This is a cause and effect situation where Lavrov crossed the line and now the Israelis are responding in kind by giving their military prowess on the defensive side of the way in which they operate to help Ukraine rebuff Russian invasion, and also at the same time showing Moscow that there's consequences for their rhetoric. Well, you are. let's shift now to Middle East terrorism, because I know you're an expert on the Middle East. Their possible infiltration into the USA, a recent Fox News 
FOIA request with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and separate request, a separate one from Texas Congressman Chip Roy, found at least 23 migrants, maybe as many as 42, matching the FBI terrorist database when they were caught crossing into the U.S. during the first 11 months of Joe Biden's presidency. So how significant, Greg, is that? Your thoughts? It's incredibly significant. There was even another report that came out this week from Project Veritas. A whistleblower inside of DHS said that the immigration and customs enforcement officers who patrol the border, but who were also responsible for resettling Afghan refugees in this country, found an additional five named terrorists who either participated in violent attacks against U.S. forces in Afghanistan or who were responsible for explosives being used against allied forces in Kabul. The situation is getting dire and more worse as this administration pursues political expediency and correctness at the expense of American national security standards. And the fact that we are in such a downward regression in our ability to not just secure our border, preventing dozens of known terrorists on our FBI's watch list coming into this country, but that we're extending that by outsourcing our immigration to countries like Qatar, a main state sponsor of terrorism, shows just how feeble our immigration system is. And to be able to fix it, the Biden administration has to look at immigrants' ideology into this country in addition to firming up our security controls at America's airports and land border crossings. If that doesn't happen, we can expect more violent individuals and known politically violent individuals who are radicalized with extremist ideology to come to this country and to have the potential for attacks. So it isn't just uh, shutting down the southern border. I mean, there's still an issue at airports and elsewhere, right? 100%. The screening processes which are currently being used by our customs officials and by our border entry officials is not dependent on the extremist ideology which permeates the majority of the most violent so-called refugees, I would call them, repeat offenders who were caught in their own country. Now they're trying to flee because they have their own violent tendencies that their host countries were not allowing them to stay present for. And so they started asking the very firm questions on whether their personal values match with American values. They should be continued to be not let into this country. But that's not the current situation. They are freely being allowed to enter the United States. Okay, Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum. As always, Greg, we appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank you. 18,000 migrants per day. That's one estimate of the number of people that will be flooding over the U.S. southern border if Title 42 ends later this month. Title 42 allows migrants to be expelled under COVID-19 pandemic emergency orders. A legal battle commenced as the Department of Homeland Security started winding down that program. Our next guest believes neither Democrats nor Republicans are really serious about protecting the U.S. southern border, Jim Belcher is a political analyst, researcher, and professor. He's also a pastor and author of the book, Cold Civil War, Overcoming Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing the Nation. Jim, it's good to have you with us. So please explain why you feel we're unlikely to see a solution to this border crisis anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, you you laid out the facts. I mean, they're thinking it could be as many as 18,000 uh, encounters at the border if if Title 42 is done away with. I mean, you just run the numbers. That's in one day. Multiply it by 30, multiply it by 12. 
and we're talking six, six or seven million encounters at the border, it'll just simply overwhelm the border guards. And probably 90% of the border guards will be pulled off the border because they'll be processing uh, the apprehensions. And most of those will then be released as they normally are. And they'll just disappear into uh, into the country. So, you know, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, you we, except for the people who live down by the border and are experiencing this increase in crime and they're just being overwhelmed and overrun, you don't hear a whole lot about it in the in the news media. And you don't hear a whole ton about it, even even in the in conservative circles or amongst Republicans. And some of it is just because historically Republicans have been the party of big business. And so big business loves all the free and cheap labor. Uh, it forces down it forces down uh, wages and and they could pass on a lot of the a lot of the care to the government that takes care of all the the extra things that employers usually need to 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 fund. So it's a massive wealth transfer. Um, and then we know Democrats love it because it brings in votes. I mean, I, I'm a resident of California, and California has been transformed by immigration, both legal and illegal. But really, there's kind of a new movement to destroy the border. There's this, it, you know, it, it kind of started with libertarians who are for open borders. And I think the Democratic Party has bought into it, and they really, really want to destroy the border. And so just flooding it with tens of thousands of illegal immigrants every day will effectively do that and effectively open the border. And it is amazing. You, you just hear very little pushback from Republicans. And I think that's because they're in, mostly in agreement. They're, it's, it's, they're not going to go against their corporate sponsors and the people that keep them and fund their campaigns and kind of keep them in the game. And so they they remain silent. Some of them believe in what's going on, uh, and it's just bad. I mean, sixty percent of the American public now uh, is believes immigration is a really big issue, and is very worried about what it's going to do to our country. But Jim, didn't the border wall and remain in Mexico policy of Donald Trump? Trump did make a difference here, did he not? Was he going against the grain? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Two things. One, yes, he. There probably was not a more effective border enforcement president than Trump. Uh, there's no doubt that they were way, way down. Uh, you know, encounters were way, way down. Um, and he did a good job, and he and he empowered the border agents to do to do their job. So yes, he he did that. And while he did that, we saw raise uh, wages raise to their highest levels for for blacks and minorities and for working class. And so that's because the border was controlled and it wasn't, our country wasn't being flooded with, with, you know, with cheap, cheap labor. So yes, he, he did a, he did a terrific job, but as soon as Biden came in, he reversed all those policies and is effectively just saying, come on in, right? They interview, they interview the, the, the migrants, the immigrants coming to the border and they all say, well, Biden invited us. He's it's the invitation. Uh, he's invited us to come. And you really believe Americans are polarized over this and many other issues. So how do we come together, Jim? It sure doesn't look like there's an easy solution here. Well, no, it isn't easy, and it's probably a generational thing. I mean, I, there's what I talk about in my chapter on immigration and cold civil war is there's there's both a no and a yes, and the no is to say we got to stop. You know, we we got to pause what we're doing at the border. Obviously, border enforcement, e-verify. Uh, we, we've got to get control of immigration because it's it's going to so completely change the culture of our country uh, that we're not going to be able to get that back. But there's also a positive, and that's putting forth a message for even the immigrants that are here and are not becoming citizens that this is a wonderful country, and they want it's a message to be assimilated into what I call a new vital center 
which is the principles and kind of the foundations of what our country was all about. And that's happening. You see some of the, particularly around the Rio Grande down in Texas, some of the, the Latinos who have voted Democrats for years are now switching parties or at least voting for Republicans who want to control the border. And because Latinos love America, uh, they tend to be very conservative, they're Catholic, and they do not like what's going on, not only in their communities, but with our country as well. So we see a, great, a, a big shift. So it's both a negative, we've got to stop what's going on, but a positive, we've got to win over as many people as we can to uh, convince them that being that this is the, this is the greatest country that the world has seen, and we're about ready to lose it. Um, and we've got to come together and protect it and restore constitutional democracy. Okay, Jim Belcher, political analyst, professor, and author of the book, Cold Civil War, Overcoming Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing the Nation. Thank you, Jim, for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Gary. In Orwellian outrage or long overdue oversight, U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is creating a new board to combat disinformation. The announcement came just a week after Elon Musk bought Twitter. So what might this new disinformation board mean for social media and censorship in the United States and beyond? Our next guest knows censorship well. Here to set us straight is Tony Lyons, president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing. So Tony, you proceeded with the publishing of several books that I know others tried to censor or prevent from being published. I'm thinking one by uh, Harvard lawyer Alan Dershowitz, another by Robert Kennedy Jr. on Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, let's talk about your publishing experience in a moment. But first, please share your thoughts on President Biden's new disinformation governance board. Is it needed? Is it good for America? Or is it taking us down a dark road? What do you think? I think it's taking us down a very dark road. You know, this has been a period of increasing censorship, and the last thing we need is a government division that is specializing in censorship. So generally, you know, anytime there's going to be really comprehensive censorship, people are going to tell you that they're trying to protect you from something. That's a very common narrative. But what they're trying to protect you from here is obviously just things that they disagree with. Well, I was going to ask, uh, what do you think? I mean, who decides what is disinformation, what isn't, what is truth, and what isn't? Right. I mean, there was a story in the New York Times about a month back that um, uh, where somebody wrote in and they said that the role of investigative journalists uh, has changed and that it should no longer be telling both sides of a story, that what we really need now in this country is for journalists to tell us the truth. And that, I think, is the same fundamental era that President Biden's making, that we don't need people to tell us the truth. We need people to present us the information on both sides so that we can make decisions for ourselves based on what we think the information shows. And the head of this disinformation governance board is Nina Jankowicz. She actually spread some disinformation of her own prior to the 2020 presidential election when she called the Hunter Biden laptop and emails a, quote, Trump campaign product. And we now know that wasn't true. Your thoughts of having her direct this disinformation effort. What's really going on here? Yeah, it is really scary to have the government, you know, set up a division run by somebody like that uh, to protect us from disinformation when what we really need is protection from people like her who are going to give us 
disinformation and punish us if we don't follow the information that we're given from the government. And Tony, you've run into censorship, or at least some of your published authors have experienced that. So how prevalent is censorship in publishing? And is most of it a legitimate attempt to stop the spread of disinformation and get at the truth, or is something else going on here? You know, the censorship that I've seen is in the same vein as what President Biden is doing now. It is a place like the New York Times. So the New York Times is trying not to protect us from real disinformation. What they're trying to protect us from is narratives that they disagree with. So when we published this book, The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., we presented it to the New York Times in, in a whole bunch of different ways. We asked them to review it. And even though it was the best-selling book in America, they refused to review it. Then we asked them to run an advertisement and they refused to take the advertisement because they disagreed with what the book said and stood for, even though they you know, clearly hadn't read the book. So you know, what, what we have is, is organizations like the New York Times or like this new bureau set up by the government purporting to protect us from censorship when in fact they're the censors. How can we stop the spread of disinformation and at the same time prevent the squashing of free speech? Yeah, so I think that, that one of the bright spots in this whole period is the fact that people in their own way are rebelling, that they're unwilling to be told what to do, what to think, and certainly what to read. So The Real Anthony Fauci was the most censored book in recent American history. You know, wasn't covered in any newspaper. You couldn't advertise for it. It was boycotted by bookstores and by libraries. I mean, you had to really work to find this book, and yet it sold a million copies. So, so I think when you look at things like that, you can see that the American public, you know, isn't willing to accept this. And then even if you look at the Elon Musk story, and I, and I think you're right on target when, when you, you know, comment that this new government bureau is coming right after the Elon Musk story of buying Twitter. And it, it really smacks of a defensive measure thinking that they're going to try to counteract the freedom of speech that is going to be possible on Twitter under Elon Musk. But I think there's even more to the story there, and that is that Elon Musk is a very sharp businessman. And I think what he's doing is he's recognizing that the American public is desperate for more free speech, not more curbs on free speech, and that by buying Twitter, he's unlocking value, that people are going to flock back to Twitter. You know, the idea that a president could be kicked off of a means of communication like Twitter is, is just shocking in a democracy where we need more dialogue and debate, not more, you know, myopic thinking where there's only one truth. Yeah, I don't think they'd do that to JFK, but it's okay to do it to his nephew, I guess. Tony Lyons, president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing, uh, thanks for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Pro-aborts knew this day was likely coming when a Supreme Court decision would nullify Roe v. Wade. Yet this week's leak of a Supreme Court draft opinion on abortion caused leftists like Senator Elizabeth Warren to go bonkers. The Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. 
They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices. Yes, Senator Warren, they have. But Democrats also plot on the other side of the issue. It seems Warren has already forgotten the confirmation hearing for Katanji Brown Jackson. Roe and Casey are the settled law of the Supreme Court. But no law is settled. It can always be overturned. And making law is the job of the legislative branch of our government, not the judicial. Vice President Harris also expressed outrage over the Supreme Court abortion draft decision. How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? Harris spoke out in favor of the president's COVID mask mandate. So I wonder whatever happened to my body, my choice for that. Oh, I see. Abortion's different because it doesn't affect other people. Please tell that to the unborn baby whose heart begins beating at six to eight weeks after conception. President Ronald Reagan said he noticed that everyone who is for abortion has already been born. Reagan was a pro-life president, but no president has done more for the pro-life cause than 45. Here's David Brody asking Donald Trump about the Supreme Court leak. Chuck Schumer says it's all your fault, of course, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Obviously, he's talking about those three pro-life uh, Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Can you pack your thoughts? Well, a lot of people are very happy about that. So some people maybe say it's my fault, and some people say thank you very much. Yes, Mr. President, many Christians and pro-life advocates should thank you. Your commitment to life may soon pay off, and that's huge, a lasting legacy. Folks, the final decision is yet to come, probably by the end of June. In the meantime, pray for the conservative justices and their family members who may have already received threats against them because of their pro-life stance. The battle is far from over. It'll soon move beyond the federal level to the states. At least 26 states are expected to enact laws against abortion. Some already have. So pro-lifers, roll up your shirt sleeves, dust off your knees, and get ready for unceasing prayer and advocacy. The struggle for the lives of America's unborn babies is far from over. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.